0: Um, are we okay? Everyone all right? Mm-hmm. Yeah? yeah? Parents are like, we're in the zone, aren't we? This is good. Um, we are going to be in a new book this one, It's Habakkuk. Before you look at your sheets. Oh, some of you got there already. I was going to do a little competition to see if you could find it the first. Because Habakkuk is one of those books that you're in your Bible and sometimes you're like, have I got like a dud Bible here? Has is, is is Habakkuk not, not been put in mine? It's tricky to find, but has someone got it? And you can shout out the... Um, The page number, if you've got it. You're all too embarrassed to say. I can see that some of you got it. No? Ah, okay. Right, 785 if you haven't got it. Page 785. Um, Habakkuk, an Old Testament book. So we've been in Philippians for a few months. We're going to be in Habakkuk for a few months. Somewhere between 10 and 12 uh, weeks. Why do we study, why are we going to study Habakkuk? Why go to an Old Testament book? Why go to a book that maybe some of us have not even heard? Well, we believe um, that God speaks through his word, speaks through all of his word. But it's not just certain books in here that he speaks to us through. Right from Genesis all the way through to Revelation, God is speaking to us, revealing himself to us. And we're going to find in this book uh, that it is rich in the gospel. And we might think, well, it's in the Old Testament. How can it be rich in the gospel? Surely the New Testament is where it's at. If you want to know the gospel, if you want to know Jesus, we go to the gospels. We go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's where the gospels are. But let me just kind of encourage us and let us know, if we aren't aware already, if you were to flick a few pages to the right of Habakkuk, you would get to the end of the Old Testament. And in most of our Bibles, there's a blank page. And it separates off into the New Testament. So we have two testaments, the Old Testament, And the New Testament. But that is not how God works through history. Like he doesn't have one chapter of his being. And then another chapter of his being. It isn't like he's two different characters. In the Old Testament and the New Testament. He is the same God. And he is about the same work. Right away from the beginning. Genesis all the way through to Revelation. He is about the same work. Which is the gospel. That is God's story of him redeeming a people to himself. And we are part of that story Here this morning and the New Testament and the Old Testament is all about the gospel. And so this might sound strange because we think we only meet him in in Matthew. But Jesus is literally on every page. From page one all the way through to the last page. He is on every page in shadows, in types, in promises. And if he is there, the gospel is there. Because the gospel is all about Jesus. So I'm excited because we're going we're to hear and learn about the gospel over the next 10 to 12 weeks. Through this maybe uh, lesser known character prophet, this lesser known book Habakkuk, we're going to encounter the gospel every week. We're going to see it this morning right in chapter one within these first few verses. We're going to encounter the gospel but before we do, we need to do a bit of history. Now this is going to Excite some of you. Some of you might just think, oh, I'll just turn off for a few minutes. Don't. This is really important. If we want to know what God is speaking to us through this prophet, we need to know a little bit of history. So I want to just take us back to Abraham. Abraham is chosen by God. Genesis chapter 12. And and God comes to Abraham and gives him a promise. Some of us will know this really well. He gives him a a promise that through him, through his descendants, he is going to gather a people, a nation to himself. And he's going to take them to a place, what becomes known as the promised land. You've heard of that? He's going to take them to their own place and he is going to use them to be a blessing. He's going to bless them. He's going to use them to be a blessing to the nations around Don't think that when you see Israel and God, God choosing out Israel that he is just about Israel. He wants to use Israel as a light to the nations. He wants to show his glory to Israel so that the rest of the world would see his glory. It's not that he's got these special people and he just loves them. He wants the whole of the world to love him and to receive his love. He chooses Abraham. Through him, he's going to bring about this nation who is going to be blessed. And God is going to be with them. Part of the promise is that God wants to be with them. And in Genesis 12, this promise is spoken into a dark world, which is 12 chapters in from Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see a perfect picture of God's presence with his people. We know that all falls down in Genesis chapter 3. And from then on, sin ravages humanity. But this promise is given. That God's people would be a light to the nations. Now you'd think that that promise given to Abraham is going to kickstart maybe a new chapter for humanity. They've been experiencing the curse of sin and maybe things are going to get better from Abraham. They've got this incredible promise. But what do we know happens? Sin increases. A thousand years of sin, disobedience. God's people are taken into slavery. You'll know the story of the exodus. God leads them out of of the Exodus and they're in the wilderness for 40 years and eventually they get to that place. They get to the promised land, this place that was promised to be a a land flowing with milk and honey, a place of peace where where they wouldn't be a conflict and yet it isn't. In fact, they start fighting each other. God's people called Israel start fighting with each other and you see glimpses of the promise. You see glimpses of them walking in the promise that God has given them. Like you see moments and you're like, They get it. They get it. It's it's all going to change. And then the next minute, they're melting all their gold and making a golden calf. Or you just see glimpses of, yeah, it's starting to sink in. Like God's people are getting it. And then they start sleeping with their sisters. Like like they just, it's like a yo-yo of getting it and then just not getting it at all. Eventually, they get fed up of trying to lead themselves. And they say to God, we want someone to lead us. We want a king. God says, I'm your king. You don't need a king. I am your great leader. They say, no, we we want our own king like the other nations. And so God says, okay, I'll give you what you want. He gives them a king called Saul. And Saul falls majorly short. Like he is the king that they want, but not really the king that they need. He's a little bit like, you know, when you order something online and you see a picture of it online and you're really excited about this thing arriving and then it arrives, or maybe you're in a restaurant and you read this description until... Maybe like this, this flowery language. You think, I've never tried that before. I'm going to give that a go. And then it lands on your table and you're like, that's not quite what I, I was expecting. But you're too embarrassed to send it back and so you eat it. That's kind of what happens with Israel. They want this king. God gives them the king and then they're like, oh, he's not what we expected. Saul falls short, majorly short. Along comes David, the next king, and he is better. David is a good man, well, kind of a good man. He kills his best friend and sleeps with his wife, but he's he's better than Saul, at least. And things do get a little bit better under King David's rule. And by the end of his reign, it looks like the promise might be getting there. But by and large, things are still unstable. The promise still feels distant. And to Solomon, David's son. Solomon does a good job. He builds the temple. Remember, part of the promise is that God wants to be with his people in the midst of his people. So Solomon builds this this beautiful temple and God dwells in the midst of his people, Israel, right there. They can commune with them. That was the missing part of the promise. They're in the land. They're being a blessing. They receive the blessings of God. but, But God hasn't been with them yet. But now he is. And under Solomon's rule, they have peace. There isn't much war going on. They begin to flourish. God is with them. It looks like the promise is finally here after a thousand years. Before Solomon dies, things start to get a little bit iffy. He starts to do the things that God told him not to do. His sons take over and things go south pretty quick. Israel, God's chosen nation, splits into two. You got Israel in the north and Judah in the south. It is split. The nation is split. And Israel, they're always a little bit ahead of Judah in terms of their rebellion and their sin. And they get captured and taken into exile. Now Judah, the southern part of the kingdom, aren't far behind. They have a succession of bad kings. And they are bad. Like we think maybe sometimes our rulers are a little bit off. Like the kings of Judah, like some of them were horrendous. King Amon, for example, he was a, a complete waster. Like he just followed idols, led the people astray. He neglected the temple, this beautiful home that God had created, Solomon had made for God's presence to be in. He totally neglected it. He dies and his son takes over. A young man called Josiah. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Now Ruthie downstairs is eight years old. I imagine Ruthie becoming queen of, of any kind of province. Like if she was queen, her government would have unicorns in it, Barbies in it, probably Micah in it. It would be an absolute nightmare. Josiah takes over at the age of eight. And as he grows, he, he learns about, about God, a God who his father rejected but his heart becomes, becomes warm at this God. And in his teenage years, he gives his life to God. He devotes his life to God. And there is mass reform across the nation of Judah. He changes the establishment, he changes the government, he changes how everything is done so it's more inclined towards walking in the ways that God has given them. You know the prophet Jeremiah, you've read of him, he's there helping King Josiah out at the time. Habakkuk is there in the wings watching all of this going on. Josiah, as a young man in his teens, is calling Judah back, come back to God, come back to the promise. And one of the things they do is they go back to the temple. It's fallen to rack and ruin. The doors have been closed. Josiah opens the doors and they have a clean-up party. Anyone have those in their old chairs when they were growing up? Clean-up parties. We all come and we, we mop up and we clean up a little bit. They have a big clean-up party in the temple. They start putting things back like they should have been. And as they're cleaning up, they find a scroll. And Josiah opens it. And he reads it. And he breaks down and he weeps. The scroll was the Torah, the first five books of our Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. (laughs) And he reads it, and his heart is broken. He's devastated. He realizes how far they have strayed away from the law of God. God gave them the the Torah to, to help them walk in his ways, to help them flourish in the land that he was bringing them to, and they just dismissed it. And he weeps. He realises how sinful they are and how great their need is for God. And so he calls all the people together. You've got to hear this. Calls them together. Reads it out loud like it must have taken a while. But he reads it all out. And they are cut to the heart. And there is mass revival across Judah. They've strayed so far away from the things of God. And now they come back. And revival, like if we think of revival now, it just touches the church. Revival then touched the whole nation. Like every part of society was touched by this revival. Reforms in the government, reforms in the economy, reforms within God's people. It was everywhere. And Habakkuk is at the side watching all of this happen. At this moment in history, there are three major superpowers. Babylon, or the Chaldeans as you might know them. Now Babylon were brutal. They were the equivalent of the North Korea of today except where North Korea kind of hovering over the nuclear button, Babylon had pressed it. And they were all in just waging war, trying to take the, all of the known world by brutal force at that time. You have Babylon, you have Assyria. Now, Assyria were, were powerful, but, but their influence was declining. And then you had Egypt. Egypt with the USA of, of our today. Like, they were once a superpower. Like, everyone bowed to them once, but now their power is declining. Babylon, Assyria, and Egypt. Judah, in comparison, you'll get this, Elliot. Uh, Elliot? Wow, my mind's gone. Um, you'll I've to- totally forgotten where I am. You'll get this. Um, in comparison, Judah, well, like Guernsey. My mind's just gone totally blank. And I've just totally forgotten your name. That's really weird. Ella? Sorry, I don't know what happened there. Babylon, Assyria, Egypt, Guernsey. That's what Judah were like. Like they were tiny, almost insignificant. Babylon, Assyria, Egypt, and tiny Judah. In 609 BC, King Necho, who was the king of Egypt, sent a message to Josiah and he said, I need to take my armies through Judah. He was forming an alliance with Assyria. He said, I just need to pass through. I'm not going to war. I just need to get through so I can get to uh, the other side. And Josiah says, no, you're not coming through. Nico goes anyway. Remember, this is a world superpower going through this tiny nation, takes his armies. Josiah says, I'm not taking this lying down. And so he dresses up as one of his soldiers, goes into battle with them. He's in the midst of the battle and he dies. On Nico's way back from Assyria, he takes one of Josiah's sons, a boy, a man called Jehoahaz, and puts him on the throne. Jehoahaz was a fool. He lasted three months as a king. Eventually, King Nico takes him off the throne and puts his brother, Jehoiakim, on the throne, who was even worse. But he lasted 11 years, and he ruled in the complete opposite way as his dad. Josiah was all about the Lord, all about bringing God's people to the Lord, all about devoting every part of their lives, every part of the nation to God. And Jehoiakim was the complete opposite. He loved the idols of other nations. He was greedy. He undid all of the political reforms that Josiah had put in place. He brought the people into deeper and deeper sin. You can read in Jeremiah, like literally this is what Jeremiah says. The nation of Judah were that bad that Babylon were looking on at Judah and they were embarrassed for them. That's how bad Judah got. Sexual immorality, rampant injustice, deceit, fraud, greed, uh, oppression of, of those who were on the margins of society, sexual perversion. The lot, like they were an embarrassment to the world. Babylon looked up and they were embarrassed. They'd fallen so far from the promise that God had given them. Habakkuk has seen revival he's seen the closeness of God he's seen his nation transformed and now he sees oppression, evil wickedness idolatry and that's where he's writing and so Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 1 the oracle the Habakkuk The prophet saw. We're only going to do a few verses this morning. Let me just stop there for a minute. Oracle isn't really a word that many of us would use, but it just means a vision or something that we've seen. Prophet, so Habakkuk the prophet, he's telling us that he is one of God's faithful men and women that God uses to speak to his people. Like we see that through God's word that he uses prophets as his mouthpiece. He's an oracle. He is a, a prophet. And this is what he says. Verse two, O Lord, Habakkuk has seen revival, he's seen peace, and he's seen all of that spiral. He says in these verses that God's word has been rejected. There is violence, there is injustice, there is corrupt leadership, and he comes to God. And he doesn't tiptoe around. He doesn't ignore the problems that are going on. He doesn't say, do you know what God, you're sovereign, it's okay, it's all going to be alright, I'm just going to sit here and wait until you sort this out. No, Habakkuk is brutally honest and he comes to God and says, God, what are you doing? Why are you letting this evil happen? Why are you letting injustice happen? Where are you? And in verse 2, when he says, how long, like that implies that he's said this before. Like he's come to God a number of times and said, okay, God, come on. What are you doing? Are you going to fix this? How long is it going to take? And he sits in the sides as he hears nothing back. This is why this is so helpful for us, folks. Habakkuk is much more honest than, than most religious people are. And most of us think that we should be before God. He is not afraid to bring his questions and he is not afraid to bring his doubts to God and neither should we. In fact, the great encouragement of these verses this morning is that in our struggle, in our doubts, in our pain, in our struggle with sin, God wants us to come to him. And he wants us to come to him honest and raw and open. Like I remember years ago when I was growing up in church, I used to be given a a job to stand at the door a bit like Ryan was this morning. It was just a a young man, a bit of a Josiah and uh, maybe not as good as him, but I'd welcome people in. And if I was on that duty, I had to wear my Sunday best. Now, some of us do come to church in our Sunday best. Some of us raised the game since they arrived, but it was a thing. You had to come dressed smart. And part of my job was to ask how people were. And people would always say, I'm great here. I had a great week doing well. I was never trained to to answer if someone had said the complete opposite. You know what? I'm really struggling. Like I was a young guy. I wouldn't have handled that very well to be fair. But if someone had said that to me, I wouldn't have known what to do because you come into church and everything's great. We all look great. We all smile. If we're going to struggle, we struggle at home in the quiet. Let Liberty Church never be like that. God wants us to come as we are. To come honest and raw, and when it even feels brutal, just to just to be open with the struggle that we are engaging in. You know, there's something beautiful about Habakkuk's name. His name means the one who embraces. Or some translations say the one who wrestles with. The one who holds onto. The one who clings. Habakkuk is struggling. He is struggling with what is going on in his life. And he comes to God and holds on to God and he cries out. Now I know this one, and even in this small group, I know there are so many struggles going on. I would encourage us, do not hide. Don't give up. Come to God and cry out to him. And in the brief time I've got left, I want to show you why we can do that. We can come to God. We can be honest And cry out to him because he is good. He is good. As you look around at your situation at the moment. Whatever it is that you are enduring. Even if you just look out at the brokenness of the world. Many of us, I've been here, many of us will will find ourselves asking the question of God. God, how can you be good when this is going on? How can you be good when when we see all of this violence and all of this wickedness and all this corruption going on? How can you be good when I feel this this tension in my life? How can you be good? And Habakkuk is in that place. He's asking the questions of God, yet he knows that God is good. Like we can easily miss this, but look down at verse 2. The first two words that he says, "Oh Lord." Now for you and me, we just skip past that. Oh Lord, capital L, capital O, capital O, capital R, capital D. Lord. The name he is using there is Yahweh or Jehovah. It's God's covenant name. It's the name that is used for God when we want to be reminded of his faithfulness. When we say Lord like that, when he says Yahweh, Jehovah, he is calling back to mind all of the promises that God has given his people, all of them which he is faithful to keep. That name is rooted in God's faithfulness. So in the midst of Habakkuk's carnage, in the midst of everything that's going on, in in the midst of the world falling down around him, in the midst of confusion, in the midst of questions, Habakkuk is saying, I know who you are, God, and who you are is good. Mm. We need to know that. And I know that we're in the Old Testament here. And often we just feel this tension in the Old Testament when we see so much bloodshed and evil, this tension of seeing, I know that you say you're good, but how can you be when I see all of this going on? And when we ask ourselves that question, we need to be reminded that God cares more about injustice. God cares more about evil. God cares more about suffering. God is grieved more by it than we are. Like I spend a lot of time reading god's word i love it it's my job sometimes it's hard to see in the old testament the goodness of god and and habakkuk is struggling there in his day but he is good and folks that is why the incarnation is so glorious because jesus christ is the image of god it's not that he was created in god's image he is god He is God with flesh on and as Jesus comes, as we just flick over a few chapters, as Jesus comes, he comes, he is the same God that Habakkuk is crying out to. The same God and sometimes it might seem blurry as we're in the Old Testament or in the midst of our struggle to see the goodness of God. But when Jesus comes, we see God in all of his fullness. We see his supreme goodness. We see as Jesus comes that God will not tolerate injustice. God will not tolerate evil. He will not allow sin to go unchecked. He is more offended, more disgusted, more grieved by those things than we could ever be. He is so aggressively opposed to those things that Jesus gave up his own life to suffer the punishment for it. And he rose again to give us eternal life, leaving us his Holy Spirit so that we could live in a better way. In our struggle, folks, we need to know that God is good. And we can allow that truth to help us come to him and cry out. He is good and he is with us. God is with us. I don't know whether you saw any of the funeral yesterday of Prince Philip or you've seen some of the photos. Um, afterwards there's one photo that is on the front of a lot of the newspapers this morning the photo of the queen sitting on her own you seen it? sitting on her own mourning the death of her husband and we get it there's COVID rules and we understand that she has to be separated but we understand that and even the commentators on the funeral were saying maybe it was a, a small mercy that she could just be away on her own and just grieve on her own behind a mask but it is heartbreaking in the same way, just trying to struggle on our own. We are not created to. We're not created to be on our own in the hardships of life. And even though sometimes we might think, do you know what, this is the easiest thing. I'll just, I'll just struggle on my own or I'll just ignore it and, and maybe it'll go away. Or we do that typical British thing and we have the stiff upper lip and we just think, do you know what, I'll just pretend. I'll put on this facade of strength. Habakkuk doesn't do that at all. He comes to God and he says exactly what is going on on his heart. He hides nothing. See, God's goodness does not mean that, 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 that God is, is thinking, oh, well, 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 they can just deal with that on their own. Or God's goodness, goodness doesn't mean that, that we should think, do you know what? God doesn't want to deal with this. God doesn't want to know about my secret sin. God, God is too holy to, to kind of engage in a struggle. He needs to do things that, that are good and deal with people who are good. That isn't how God works. He isn't like a Greek God that sits up in the clouds and looks down with a big frown on his people and is disappointed when we struggle. That isn't how God works. He's not looking at you when you struggle with your, with your sin and, and saying, oh, here she goes again. She's at it again. Let's kind of move on to someone who's good. Or looking at you when you're struggling with a debilitating physical ailment and saying, oh, she's moaning again. Let's find someone who's, who's not moaning and, and, and spend our time there. That isn't what God is like. God is holy. He is uncompromisingly good, but he is not distant. He is close with his people. And that closeness brings us peace. God is a God of peace and he is peace. And because he is close in the midst of our struggle, we can have peace. Even for Habakkuk, 600 years before the incarnation, you can just read it here and we're going to see more of it. He has an intimate, raw, personal relationship with God. He knows the closeness of God. He is vulnerable and honest. And you are only like that with people that you trust. Like some of us will know this if we've been to the GP with an embarrassing illness. And the GP asks you to explain this embarrassing, I hope I'm not the only anyone here, the embarrassing illness. And you feel really uncomfortable, especially when you have to kind of show and, and you know where I'm getting at. It feels uncomfortable to open our hearts and be honest and raw and brutal. Ella's like, no, nah, I see this all the time. It's fine. <laughs> to be open and honest and brutal with, with who we are, with people that we don't trust. But we can trust God. Because he is close and because he has sent his son to die for our sin. He has shown us that he is good. And so we can be as honest and open and vulnerable and raw with him as we need to be. Habakkuk gets it this side of the cross. How much more should we get it on this side of the cross? When God is no longer confined to a temple. The word of God says he abides in us. The Holy Spirit abides in us. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. So so let's not kid ourselves. There is no such thing as secret sin with God. There is no such thing as a private struggle with God. He already knows. So quit pretending. Come to Jesus and cry out to him. He's good. He is with us. And finally, he is love. He loves you. Why is Habakkuk so bold? And robust and honest with God. Why doesn't he fear God kind of just sending a bolt of lightning down. And burning him up in wrath in that moment. Because Habakkuk knows God is love. And that God loves his creation. He has a covenantal love with his creation. That means it is unbreakable. Let me just make this black and white for us here folks. Whatever struggle you are facing. Whatever pain you are enduring, whatever battle with sin you are engaging in, wherever there is a lack of resource in your life, wherever there is a doubt in your faith, wherever there is daily anxiety, a daily battle with depression, whatever struggle you are facing, if you are a child of God, God is not punishing you. That is not punishment from God. He loves you. In fact, if you're a Christian, he cannot punish you. All of the punishment that you do deserve, and it is a lot, has already been poured out on his son. It's already been dealt with. God the Son has been punished for you. So the cup of God's judgment for you, the cup of God's punishment for you, which should be full, is now empty. And that is good news. But that's not all. The cup of God's wrath is empty. This cup of love overflows for you. It is unstoppable. It is immeasurable. And if we are ever in doubt, as we are, we are in the midst of the struggle, as we are experiencing the pain of life, and it can be brutal sometimes, if we are ever in doubt that God loves us, look to the cross. Apostle John says this 1 John 4, verse 10 In this the love of God was made manifest, shown amongst us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the payment for our sins. God loves you. So come to him. Cry out to him. Receive his peace. Habakkuk is in despair. He asks difficult questions of God and we're going to see next week that God responds to his questions and I just want to say the full picture of what God is doing in the midst of Habakkuk's struggle and in the midst of our struggle maybe won't be seen until we're with him. On that day the curtain will be pulled back and we'll see the full glory of God's work now but while we wait we can come to Jesus. We can be honest and raw and be open and cry out to him knowing that he is near knowing that he is good And knowing that he loves us deeply. Let's pray. Father we need you. There's so much brokenness in this room. In our lives at the moment. There are battles with sin. There are struggles with life. And we need you. We need your peace. Help us to come to you and to cry out to you. Help us not to hide. Help us not to put on a facade of strength but help us to come as we are. Jesus, as we do, we pray that you would that you would give us the peace that we so desperately need. Pray that you would give us the clarity to see that you are good. That you are for us. And that you love us that work we ask by your spirit for our good and your glory Amen